Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 17 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And today we're discussing part one of the HBO documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips? Now, this is quite a sad story of the death of a 12-year-old boy found in his apartment in the middle of the day. The small town that they live in is rocked on their access, and it seems that the police jumped to point the finger at an ex-boyfriend of Garrett's mom. If you're anything like us, the story might piss you the hell off. So this is your cue to grab yourself a drink. You're going to need it. Hello. Good it's to see you. It's been a whole week. I know. I know. It's been a very busy week for me. Yeah. I feel like it has not been a whole week since I've seen you, but every single day has been such slow moving that it's unbearable yeah. Yeah. almost. And I've been so busy at work. Same. I mean, so, so busy at work. I, I enjoy it. It helps my work day go faster, but I, yeah. I almost feel like I don't have enough time in the day. You know, I feel like even though I'm busy and I still have the same amount of time as I normally do working, it's just a different mindset, I think. So well, I am I ready wish. for our episode tonight. <laughs> uh, same, because I think I have been almost too efficient at my job because by 2 p.m. every day this week, I'm like, how is it only two? Mm-hmm. I have been here for nine hours. <laughs> it's right. been rough, to say the least. Well, yes, I, this is a crazy, frustrating horrible story. I really can't believe it. It's, uh, I think we just need to dive in because I, this is just horrendous. I know. I wasn't expecting this. No, not to a, be honest. Neither one of us had seen this. Nope. We just kind of, I mean, to be quite honest, we picked it blindly. Mm-hmm. We wanted to do something that had one to two parts, something a little bit shorter. Yep. And this was one that had a two-parter and it was not what I was expecting. Yeah. It's, uh, Definitely interesting. Yeah. Well, since it's our Thursday night. Yes. And we are here to podcast. We are. What are we drinking? Well, being that it is Thirsty Thursday. Yay. We are going to celebrate this week with a Vizzy hard seltzer. Yes. We are going to do the, what is it? This is the Hint of Black Cherry Lime. So this one is, ooh, so fresh. Yes, it is. I, I've i really come to like these. These are delish. Anything cherry lime is mm-hmm. my jam. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with lime, key lime. I love it. Uh, me too. Well, let's pop them. All right. That was nice. That was perfect. Was perfect. Oh, my gosh. So good. Oh, that like breathed life so right into good. me. Oh, black cherry. I'm telling you. So good. So, so good. Oh, good choice. Thanks. (laughs) So this documentary starts off in a courtroom. Yeah. And we are basically seeing opening statements from both the defense attorney and the prosecutor. Yeah. We see right away the defense. He states that the narrative of the case has been simple. There was a group of incompetent police officers from a small town in upstate New York on a very thin amount of evidence, 
They brought this case against a man, perhaps motivated by his skin tone. It made for great TV and great theater. Ultimately, it seemed like a rush to judgment because of the defendant's race. It boils down to 30 minutes in Potsdam, New York, 4.53 p.m. to 5.23 p.m. on Monday, October 24th of 2011. We see the prosecution, and he states that the death of a child invokes a lot of pain and sorrow and really a natural cry for justice for someone to be held accountable. Of course, that is hands down that makes sense. Yeah. And then he also states it must be the right person. Oh, yeah. You can't just go out and prosecute anyone that you think did it. You have to ensure that it's the right person. Absolutely. You don't want to have it happen again. Exactly. Yep, exactly. We're now in Potsdam, New York, and we meet Marissa Vogel. She was actually a resident at the apartment building on 100 Market Street where Garrett lived. Her and her boyfriend actually had both went to the Potsdam College, and they felt right at home very much a small town living type of environment for them. Yeah. And they found their apartment at the beginning of 2010. It wasn't your typical college apartment with a ton of college kids partying and hanging out. It was very clean and very homey feeling. Yeah. It seemed more like almost like a regular apartment building. Yes. With like families. Absolutely. Not like a college campus. No, no, no. They were definitely not living on campus by any means. Yeah. And they knew of their neighbors. Sure a single mother and her two boys, but they didn't have much in common, so they kept to themselves. That completely makes sense. Oh, totally. Our last apartment we lived in for six years, we didn't know a single neighbor. Really? Literally didn't talk to anyone. And I don't know if it's when you live in a townhouse, you're just so close to these people already. Yeah. It's just a different vibe. And it was a lot of older people too, so we just didn't really have much in common, like she said. So I totally understand that. Yeah, my first apartment that we lived in in Chicago, the building I lived in was all one-bedroom apartments. Mm. So it basically nullified anybody having a family living there. Sure. So it was kind of cool. Yeah, that is. Because we were, well, I was 18 to the age of 21. And like all of our neighbors were roughly, you know, in our like 20s. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing. Like we were all friends. Oh, yeah. But there were no kids. Right. So- I totally get that. I would not have associated with a mother and her kids right. at the age of 18 being in college. Right. No, it doesn't make much sense. We're on different playing fields. Exactly. Yeah. We next meet Shannon Harris. She was actually dating another guy who lived at the same apartment building. Yeah. They had seen Garrett and his younger brother before on their scooters playing, hanging out. I mean, they just, you don't think much about it, right? When nothing's really going on, it's just kind of normal kids doing their thing. Yeah, you realize that there are two kids that live there. Exactly. And that's it. Exactly. Now, on October 24th, 2011, Marissa tells us that it was a normal day. She had arrived home actually a little bit early, around 4.15, 4.20. They had started dinner and everything was plated by 5 p.m. Who eats at 5 (laughs) p.m.? Right. (laughs) (laughs) We don't even start dinner until about 5.30. Uh. (laughs) 5.30, that's what time I have my snack. We don't usually eat dinner (laughs) until about 8 p.m. But my husband also doesn't get home till 7.30. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, her and her boyfriend went to their bedroom to eat and watch Dexter. Love it. I've actually never seen Dexter. (gasps) It's on my list. I've never seen it yet. (laughs) Kenzie. Am I really a true crime fanatic? Shame. (laughs) Well, it's not true crime, but it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, 
I'm rooting for the bad guy. Yeah. Because he's not the baddest bad guy. Right. Like, he's not the worst one. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. You have to watch it's it. It's on my list. Now, Shannon tells us that around 5 p.m., they were outside in the back of the apartment building changing a tire on Andrew's car. And she kept hearing noises coming from the Phillips apartment. Yeah. So their window was like right above where they were changing this this tire on this car. And they couldn't figure out where this noise was coming from. Yeah. Yeah. She knew the general direction. She just didn't exactly know what it was either. Right. Marissa comes back and says that they weren't chatting, obviously, while they were watching their show and eating. And that's when they heard a running sound and then a crash. There was a little bit of silence and then a moan for help. They weren't sure if they said ow or no because they heard something else after help. Yeah. And they definitely knew it was a child's voice who sounded really scared. Mm-hmm. And Marissa goes to knock on their door, heard an indistinct noise, and then what sounded like a lock clicking as if someone was walking to the door locked the door and walked away because they didn't want to come out. Oh, my God. How creepy. It is super crazy. It is super creepy. And you should say that. It (laughs) was super crazy. (laughs) Crazy and creepy. (laughs) I might keep that in. (laughs) And obviously, it made her super uneasy and really uncomfortable. I would be super scared. I would be going back into my apartment and locking my door. For real. You know what I mean? I mean, that's Especially if they have like a peephole, I'd be like, Ew, they just saw me. They you know, know, like, ew, yes. I don't know. They, they for sure probably have peepholes in apartment buildings. I think oh, yeah. all of them do. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah. So, ugh, that's super creepy. Yeah. So, Marissa, being very smart and logical, goes in and calls the police at 5.08 p.m. She tells them the story. She really says that she's not sure if it's serious enough to need to call them. Yeah. But it was weird enough that she wanted to make sure that everyone was okay in that apartment. And bless her. I know. I know. Because there's a lot of people that will see stuff and not say anything. Yeah. Especially in apartments, too. Yes. Because you just, you don't want to look like a jackass, you know, and say something when it was nothing. Yep. But I think she probably had that just like sixth sense that like something wasn't right. You know what I mean? Like you just get that like overwhelming body feeling like, okay, something doesn't seem right in this scenario. off. And the dispatcher tells her that someone will be out to investigate. And police end up arriving at the apartment just six minutes after the call into 911, which is amazing. But yes, shocking, because that never happens. It's usually like 30 minutes, 45 minutes after a phone call. So, I mean, that's awesome that they got there that fast. Small town, man. That's right. We then see our first little bit of on-screen text, and it says that Officer Wentworth arrives at the apartment at 5.14 p.m. and listens at the door. He doesn't hear any noise. He then knocks and hears what sounds like someone walking around. So think about it. You knock. You can hear when somebody is actually in the apartment. Yeah. But nobody's answering the door. I don't know if he thinks that this person was walking towards the door or away. He doesn't specify. But he calls dispatch. Yeah. They need to try to get in touch with the landlord. So at 521 p.m., The police dispatcher calls the landlord, Rick Dumas. I'm not even going to lie to you. When I saw his name, I kept wanting to say dumbass. I was going to say that same thing. (laughs) Because I don't know what movie that's from, but it's a big joke, right? It's like Dumas, Dumas, or dumbass. Like, whatever. (laughs) So we're just going to call him Landlord Rick. There we go. 
So the police dispatcher, you know, says to Rick, well, we're hoping that you can come over, open up the door for the police. They want to investigate an apartment, but they can't just walk in. Nobody's answering the door. Right. Now, he tells them that at the time he's in Potsdam dropping his niece and nephew off at basketball with his wife and that he can run back to the complex right afterwards. He does have a key for the apartment. So Officer Wentworth waits at the door for the landlord to arrive. We then have some more on-screen text that says at 5.24 p.m., he knocks at the door with the patrol stick and calls for the occupant to open up. He reports again hearing noises that sound like movement from inside the apartment. And at 5.33 p.m., the landlord, Rick Dumas, arrives and opens the door to the apartment. Now, Marissa was asked at this time to wave down emergency vehicles. Mm -hmm. So she must have still been in the hallway, kind of looking out and trying to figure out what's going on. Right, right. Because remember, she's the one that called. Exactly. And she, I think, of course, you're curious. You want to figure out what's going on. You want to see if it was serious or not, right? If your yeah. call was really warranted and she finds out it was. Yeah. We then hear some phone calls between the officer and the dispatch. The officer is saying that he's going to start CPR, that there's an unresponsive male, maybe 10 years old, no pulse, not breathing. Marissa says the whole thing was a whirlwind from then on. Oh, yeah. There were tons of people. Then a gurney came up. Then they took Garrett down and everything stopped. It would almost be unbelievable. You'd probably be watching this and be like, wow, I can't even believe that this is where we're going with this. Right. You know what I mean? Like, she I kind of thought it was a silly call, potentially. Right. Exactly. And it's really serious and, and life-threatening at this point. Yeah. And she's Ugh. almost probably thinking like, I almost wish it was a silly call. Exactly. You know? Especially when she finds out that he's only 12-year-old Garrett. Right. Right. Oh, it's so sad. We then have another phone call between the officer to dispatch. And they're saying that, you know, the mother is Tandy Cyrus. So they must have seen something inside the apartment or even just known who the apartment owner was based on the landlord. But they didn't know the child. The child's name was unknown. The mother was not there. When hearing the name Tandy Cyrus, the dispatch says to the police officer, well, isn't that John Jones's ex-girlfriend? And Officer Wentworth says, yep. And I just had to write small town because at this moment, you don't know that John Jones is a police officer. Right. For the Potsdam Police Department. I instantly just got a weird feeling when they said that. I'm like, that seems really, really weird. I mean, she does not have a normal name. I've never heard the name Tandy before. No, me neither. You know, so it's not like she has an everyday name, but it's still, it it was weird to me. Yeah. But again, you said small town. That does make sense and that does track. Yeah. Now, at 5.55 p.m. on October 24th, so this is the same day, police dispatch gets a hold of the chief of police, Ed Tischler. They're explaining the situation and mention the name Tandy Cyrus and Ed kind of goes, well, how do I know her? Mm-hmm. Like, why does that sound familiar? And they're like, well, that's John Jones's ex-girlfriend. And the dispatch goes, well, no one was there with the child. He's been transported by ambulance. But Ed immediately is like, well, I, I want to know what you guys think happened because it's so strange, right? right. Because it's not normal for a 12 year old to be in this sort of predicament and end up dying. Right. You know what I mean? Like, There's something weird going on here, and they need to get to the bottom of it as soon as they can. Absolutely. Now, at 6 p.m., there's a phone call from Nancy Rudledge to the police dispatcher. Now, Nancy is the supervisor at the Canton Potsdam Hospital. 
And she's saying that the insurance card that they found lists Tandy Cyrus as the person of contact mm-hmm. or the policyholder and that they're trying to get in touch with her. Now, John Jones, he's a sheriff deputy in Potsdam. He is the ex-boyfriend of Tandy Cyrus. He says he gets a call from her around 6.08 p.m. that some parents had told her that something had happened to Garrett and that she needed to call John. So always being very dependable with Tandy, John immediately like leaves whatever situation he's in to get to her to figure out what's going on. Yep. We then meet Brian Phillips. Now, he is Garrett's uncle. So Brian is not Tandy's brother, but rather the brother of Garrett's dad. Brian says that out back, he could hear his aunt scream and he was told to get to the hospital immediately. So his mother, Tandy, and himself get to the hospital and go right into the room. Mm -hmm. We then hear the voice of Patricia Phillips. So this is Garrett's grandmother on his dad's side. Yeah. She says that she sees him laying there on a breathing machine, that she takes his hand, gave him a kiss on the forehead, and says, come on, kid, for grandma. And at that moment, he coded. Flatlined. Flatlined. There we go. Mm-hmm. We get some on-screen text that states Garrett Phillips is pronounced dead at 7.18 p.m. He was 12 years old. Ugh. Brian, his uncle, comes back and says they went in to hug and kiss him and say goodbye and I mean, obviously, it was extremely difficult. Yeah. And he says it was unfair that somebody could do this to him because they knew pretty quickly that this was not accidental and that this was a murder. Yeah. We see John Jones again, Tandy's ex. And just a little bit of a side note, I had a bad feeling about him the moment I saw him talk. Same. I first found it weird that she was the first person that Tandy calls is her ex-boyfriend. The only reason I didn't find that weird is because he was a police officer. I mean. And could maybe get her information quicker. I mean, as we go on. Yeah. In the episode. Then it it gets weird. Then it looks weird. You know what I mean? Then it looks weird. But I just got this weird, creepy feeling immediately when I saw his face. I'm like, I don't like him. No, I I don't like him. There's something something off. There's something weird about him. Yep. He tells us that, you know, they didn't know what happened. Obviously, this this just happened. Yeah. But they knew it looked a little fishy. There was something going on, possibly foul play. Yeah. Now we see a quick little photo of Garrett, and it looks like he's on almost like an autopsy table. That's what I kind of saw, because it definitely didn't look like he was in the hospital anymore. I mean, it was one of those like metal tables, almost like in a body bag. That's exactly what I said, is it looked like he was about to be zipped up in a body bag. I mean, you could see the bag around him. It broke my heart. Thank God. It was like a view from behind. Kind of, yeah. So like you're looking at his head towards his feet, right? So yep. ugh, you don't see his you face don't see or his anything face like that. real close or anything. Ugh. But yeah, I mean, they have to it's photograph all of that sad. stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, oh, I was not expecting that. And just like his hair. I mean, you see like with kids, they have those like really pronounced like colics and the way that their hair like like sits and goes. Oh, he totally had beaver he, hair. He totally had it. And I'm like, oh, my God. He just it, it just really sets things into reality. Yeah. I mean, it's just so real then when you see that kind of stuff. It's oh, yeah. just it's oh, it's so terribly sad. I know. We get some more on screen text that states the cause of death was strangulation and suffocation. Now, Bob Phillips and Patricia Phillips come back. So that is Garrett's grandparents on his dad's side. And we see them at the cemetery. 
Patricia tells us that they see him usually once a week. She used to go every single day when he first passed away. And now she she goes every single week and talks with him and has her coffee with him and, you know, just tells him about her day. And I just, I love that. I mean, I that's that's just, it probably gives her some sense of peace with yeah. it. Because I think that's, it's so hard to imagine that you're never going to see them again. And they were only 12 and they had so much more life to live, right? Yeah. She tells us that his classmates actually bring a signed soccer ball to his grave every single year. It was so cute. I know. I literally put down how sweet. Yeah. At this point, I have another side note. I'm getting really suspicious of Tandy because we have yet to see her on this documentary. Yeah. This is her son we're speaking about. Yeah. And she's not willing to participate in a documentary that's talking about his death and who was responsible. I'm not going to lie. She there's something about her that rubs me the wrong way through the whole thing. I know it's very weird. Ugh. I, I mean, you just have that gut feeling. There's something um, going yeah. on. There's, there's something, something happening. Yes. Something is. Ugh. Yes, absolutely. Just a quick note. There is a lot of on-screen text in this episode, so yeah. we apologize, but we will say every single time that when there's on-screen text. We want you to know that this was a part of the documentary, and this is what the documentary was stating yeah. at the time. And a lot of times it's written better than what we could write. So exactly. we don't want to exactly. look like we're doing like way better over here than we actually are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we get another set of on-screen text that states that Garrett's father, Robert Phillips Jr., died of a brain aneurysm when Garrett was just under three years old. So I'm sure Garrett didn't even really remember him. He was 30. I know. And I, I did a little bit of research. Did you? On what a brain aneurysm is. Oh, I know what it is, but you can go ahead and share it. Mm-hmm. And I knew a little bit about it. I've actually known a few people that died of, of aneurysms. My grandpa died of an aneurysm, not a brain aneurysm. It was like in his stomach or something. My aunt did of a brain aneurysm. Yeah. And my dad had one in his abdominal aorta. That he actually had fixed. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, that's that's awesome. It, it's unheard of. It's, oh, yeah. It, they had to get FDA clearance for it to happen. But wow. Yeah. So, yep. Go thankful. ahead. Thankful. So thankful for that. Yeah, right. Well, I got this information from the Mayo Clinic, yeah. and it states that a aneurysm is a bulge or ballooning in a blood vessel in the brain. It often looks like a berry hanging on a stem. Sure. And a brain aneurysm can leak or rupture, causing bleeding into the brain, like a hemorrhagic stroke. And it can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. Nothing matters. It can happen at any single time in your life. It's kind of terrifying. No, it's totally terrifying. Because you could have one and not know it. Yeah, and you can have one for a long time. Mm -hmm. So with my aunt, she didn't know she had it. Her husband at the time came home and found her on the floor of their living room unconscious took her to the hospital, found out she had had this aneurysm. They had gone in and tried to do some surgery to help. She did not make it. So she ended up passing away. I don't really know how many days she was there. I was pretty young at the time. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And it's it's terribly sad in this scenario. You know, I mean, only being 30 years old. I mean, you have so much of your life to live and you don't get to see your kid grow up, you know, and this just like him. I know. And then this unfortunate thing happens. It's just it's all around. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. Now, Brian comes back. That's that's Garrett's uncle. And he wanted to be a father figure for Garrett. After his father died, he really wanted to kind of step in and play that role for him. So he knew he always had someone to go to. Yeah. So we meet Mark Murray for the first time. He is the lead investigator for the Potsdam Police Department. 
And he had been helping coach his younger brother's soccer team and had checked his phone near the end of a game one night to find a voicemail from work. The police dispatch calls Mark Murray at 5.53 p.m. the night that Garrett died and left him a voicemail about the crime scene and told him that Garrett was unresponsive at the time. Now, he left the soccer game immediately, obviously, to get there as fast as he could to figure out what was going on, kind of get his head into that mode of, oh, my gosh, we have something really serious on our hands. Yeah. And he immediately thought it was suspicious. Like we stated, a 12-year-old just doesn't die. That just doesn't normally happen. There's something else behind it. Yeah. Well, especially in an apartment all alone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We get some on-screen texts that say it's that while photographing the third bedroom, the officers noticed that the blinds on the window are bent forward. They knew someone had jumped from that window. I mean, it's pretty clear. It looks looks to be that way. No, it looks like it. Yeah. Well, and I think the screen was even like bent outwards, too. Right. Exactly. It was pretty obvious. Exactly. And they go on to say that the investigators observed that a tile on the surface of the ledge below the window has a substantial crack in it. We see those pictures. Yep. It's clear as day that it looks like someone put their foot on it. I and they must say, have been yeah. pretty heavy to make that tile crack. And it, it's not like it fell all the way off. It is just a, a big, yeah, it's big just like crack, a crack in, it. in the tile. Yeah. Mark tells us that, of course, this was handled completely as a crime scene at that time. They knew yeah. that this was foul play. We see a phone call at 1137 p.m. from Scott Hegelke who was a New York State police officer, to Ed Tischler, who was the chief of the Potsdam police. And Ed basically says that they are holding the scene till the morning. It's obviously almost midnight. And the autopsy will be done the next day as well. Yeah. John Jones comes back and says that everyone was in shock. He actually called his girlfriend, his actual girlfriend at the time, and told her that he was going to stay with Tandy that night to help her through this difficult time. And I'm like, okay, what? It's so weird. Like, is yeah. his girlfriend just like, oh, yeah, go spend the night with your ex-girlfriend. I'm totally fine with that because she needs you sleeping next to her during this difficult time. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? On. I love that oh. your mind immediately went there. Mine was not like that at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh I don't like this John Jones character. No, you I, don't. I had a bad feeling the immediate second I saw him. I just don't like him at all. Yeah, there is something that rubs me the wrong way. but I, And I can't put my finger on it yet. It'll come. Yes. But right now, it's like I don't exactly have a rational way to yep. explain why I feel the way I feel. And this just isn't normal. Like, yeah, you it can go spend normal. time with her, like talk to her, console her during the day. But then you have to call your real girlfriend and tell her, oh, yeah, I'm going to be spending the night with my ex-girlfriend just to get her through this, you know, and just don't don't worry. Like, don't worry about it. What do you mean? What yeah. is happening? Like, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it. It is weird. Um, it's weird. I think because it's such a small town, everybody knows everybody. And as we know, John and Tandy went out for enough time where John knew the kids. Mm -hmm. So I think also his girlfriend might also kind of be like, oh, gosh, like you kind of played stepdad for a while with them. I, you know, this might also be something for you. So I think it might just be a familiarity kind of a thing that they need to be with each other at the moment. That's kind of how I read into it. Sure. But then again, in my family, we don't get rid of exes. (laughs) They're still hanging around. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, devil's advocate. I know. But yes, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, as the girlfriend, I'd be like, why do you need to stay there? I, well, but, that's just what, yeah. to me, that 
that would not fly. Yeah. I'd be like, I think she's okay tonight. You can see her tomorrow. Right. You know, have her come to our house and sleep on our couch. Yeah. Like it was off. Yeah. We're then introduced to Gary Snell, but not directly. It's kind of somebody talking about Gary Mm -hmm. Snell. And they're saying that he was an investigator for the New York State Police Department. And he had actually stopped by the Phillips family home because he is kind of a a Parishville community member. So he lives out there. He Mm -hmm. knows the family. So he stops out there on his way home from work. And they say that as they're kind of talking about things, trying to trying to get, you know, as much as we can, as as fresh as everything is at the moment, Mm -hmm. no one really stuck out immediately. But they thought that they should maybe start looking into Nick Hillary. Now, this was another ex-boyfriend of Tandy. Apparently, she's dated half the town. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So what they come to find out is that Garrett didn't really like him. And he and Garrett must have kind of butted heads a little bit. Now, Brian Phillips, his uncle, says he believes Hillary is 100% responsible. Yeah, He He believes it to his very core. Yeah. And he talks about how... Nick kind of had an excessive disciplinarian type of a role when it came to parenting, such as, you know, not letting the kids watch any TV or play any games or go outside and play with their friends. They had to make sure that all of their like practices were, you know, on point and all of their schoolwork was done. And I mean, I get it from both sides. What we come to find out a little bit later is that Nick is actually a soccer coach for a university. Right. So he was really brought up in a rigorous sport mentality. So that doesn't seem completely out of the realm of possibility for me. No. Especially with the way that a lot of parents are with their kids right now in this day and age. Oh, yeah. And sports. Yep. Making sports their entire life and not letting them have much of a social life outside of their team. So I understand where Brian's coming from because I'm like, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) Like, have a life, be a child, enjoy not having a ton of responsibility because the rest of your life, you're not going to have that. Mm -hmm. But there are people on the other side that want every moment of every day scheduled for their kids. Well, and I think, too, they they tell us that Nick Hillary was in the military for for an amount of time. So I think that probably was instilled in him already. Mm -hmm. And he's a really successful person. Right. So he's very disciplined himself. So I think that's just in his personality in his DNA to be that way. And so when it wasn't that way with Garrett, and I think their personalities probably just clashed, even though obviously Garrett's much younger than him, it can happen. Well, and a lot of times you don't want to have some other guy coming in and telling you what to do. Exactly. You're not my dad kind of a thing. So it could have totally been that. And my daughter is almost 12. I mean, she's going to be 12 in like two weeks. Mm -hmm. So I totally have that mentality in my household from time to time. Exactly. Yep. We're then hearing some like radio discussions, you know, playing on in the background. And basically they're talking a lot about how there was rumors circulating that this was possibly death by assault, that potentially other kids out in the town had actually done this. Yeah. Yep. So that was interesting to me. I will say I don't think it was a child. And the reason I don't think that is because of how high up that window was. I can't see a kid having the mental capacity to walk over to the door and lock it when someone's knocking on it 
and then jump out a second story window. No, they would have never been able to do that successfully. Right. There's no way they would have been able to not get caught. Right. It, I just don't That think, doesn't make sense. Yeah, it just wouldn't. It Yeah. Doesn't track at all. No, not at all. Next, we meet W.T. Eckert. Now, he's a reporter for the Watertown Daily Times. And he says there were many theories out there. And one of them being kids playing this game called Knockout, which I don't know if this is the same thing, but we used to play a game called Blackout where one person would stand up against the wall, like they're back against the wall, and somebody else would like literally put their hands around their throat until they blacked out. Interesting. I never played it because I was like, that's <laughs> fucked up. And I'm a girl. I'm not going to like willingly black out in right. front of a bunch of boys. Like, right. no, thank you. But I remember watching boys do yeah, that. And yeah. I always thought it was really fucking weird. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe that's the same thing. Similar. But it yeah. kind of sounded like it. But what he did say was that among all of the theories, Nick Hillary seemed to be the most feasible explanation out of all of the other theories that seemed to be there. And he thinks that any other theory that came in was pushed aside because of that. They don't tell us much, though, like how they, they got why to that conclusion. It would be, right. They, they don't explain, like, why he's the most feasible feasible person yeah, right. to have done this. It, they Athletically, don't... I think, yes, he probably yes. could have gotten away with that, you know, that jump from the window. But why would he have wanted to do it? Well, and that's that the thing. Does, he doesn't have a motive to do it. It doesn't make sense. You know, like right. you have to have a motive to do so, something or it was completely by accident. But why would he have been there with him at that apartment? He didn't live there anymore. He, right. You well, know, he never lived in that apartment with them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah they, it's not like they were even together anymore. They were already separated at this point. So that seemed odd to me, too, that immediately, like, he was the only person that really fit the bill. Right. But they don't explain why or how they came to that conclusion. Well, and the other thing, too, is that they talk about, you know, potentially Garrett being like a victim of bullying. But at the same time, again, I don't see a child no. being the one who did this. No, no. Also, my other question through this, where was the other brother? Right. I mean, I know he was younger. But even if he was only two years younger, he was 10. Where was he? I don't know. Yeah. And where the hell was Tandy? Right. Where was he? Where was Tandy? Why was he by himself? Like, I mean, all of it is confusing to me. I don't right. understand. I, I don't get it. No, it's, it seems it seems weird. But I mean, I don't know. As a single parent, I know what it's like to and growing up with a single parent. I mean, at that age, we were definitely home alone by ourselves after school. Yeah. Until my mom got home. Sure. Like, that wasn't abnormal. And my brother was two years younger than me. So if I was 12, he would have been 10. We also had a whole neighborhood of people that were watching yeah. every freaking move we made. Right. Because my mom would call us or come home and like ground the shit out of us if any of the neighbors called her at work sure. and told her that we were misbehaving. Right, right. Which happened. Yeah, absolutely. More often than I would <laughs> like to admit. <laughs> now, they're also saying that there was a ton of falsely reported stories all over the media. Which I wrote, whatever happened to fact-checking? Yeah. I mean, we can't just rely on Facebook to fact-check everything that goes out there. Reporters are supposed to do that. You're not supposed to falsely put things out there. I think, and this sounds terrible, but I think it was just such a salacious type of event that happened in their small town. 
and they were running with whatever they heard. Yeah. You know what I mean? To I be think the it was opinions fir- over anything else going out there. Absolutely. And I think too the the news outlets wanted to be the first person to report on it, right? And and say something about the case and he- say their theories that they've been hearing. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that they should be throwing all these theories out because now you're gonna get Joe Schmo and his friends thinking that, oh, yeah, that this is what happened. Then they come up with their own theories and everyone's coming up with their own theories about what happened when they're not even really looking at the facts and what could have actually happened to him. Right. You know, I think it was just, yeah, rush, rush to judgment on on all different sides of the coin. You know, it's like modern day, like clickbait. Is what it sounded like to me. Absolutely. Like, let's get the best title out there for you to watch our episode or our segment on this or read our article. Absolutely. It fucking makes me sick. I'm so sick of false reporting on shit. It's it's so annoying. It's all over. (laughs) And it's really annoying. It is. There's some more on-screen text that says at 8.30 a.m., Garrett's mother, Tandy Cyrus, arrives at the police station for the first of many interviews. And John Jones is with her. So at 8.38 a.m. on October 25th, 2011, Mark Murray comes in. He's that lead investigator that we met a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that, you know, they had made those efforts of the official notification to everybody who needed to be notified about what had happened and that Mark is sitting there kind of taking notes during this interview. Mm -hmm. And Ed Tischler, the chief of police for Potsdam, is speaking to Tandy. Now, we can't hear anything. It's basically... Completely silent. It's visual. It's all visual, which mm-hmm. was really weird to me. Yeah. I don't know why they took that out because they have to record all of those interviews right. anyway. So it was strange. It'd be nice to know what they were saying. A little bit because mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. She looked very, I don't know, not as just, not how I would have been the day after right. something like that shit would have happened to my child. Yeah. It's so hard to know how people will react to trauma yeah. and and things like that. But we have not seen her in this documentary. No. Why? What is she hiding? Why does she not want to be a part of this documentary is what's immediately a red flag to me and on my yeah. radar. Like, what is wrong with you? Your your child died, was murdered, murdered. by someone, and they're doing a two-part documentary, HBO is, on your son's story. Where and what happened? And where are you? Why are you not a part of this? Yeah. It's weird. It's, it is it, weird. It's, I don't like it. It rubs me the wrong way. I don't like her. No, I don't like her. It's I weird. I don't like her either. So what I have written down is, what was the conversation? Because we don't <laughs> yeah. know what's happening. Right. And what I also have written down here is because it was a little bit of something. It must have been like a blurb on the side. Was that Ed is telling Tandy that they are going to be questioning Nick Hillary. We now go back one day to October 24th. At 9.42 p.m., this is the first contact that the police have with Nick Hillary. And Mark called him and told him that they wanted him to just come down to the station to talk about what happened to Garrett. Nick didn't think anything of it, right? Sure. He's like, yeah, no problem. Now, we meet Nick Hillary in the flesh. Yeah. He's not in an orange jumpsuit. He's not in prison. First thing I noticed. Exactly. That's the first thing I noticed. Because I'm like, okay, well, he's the lead suspect in this. And, you know, we've been watching for quite a while now. You figured he might be in prison. Well, he's not. He's at his home having a conversation with the documentary crew. He's just doing an interview. He says that everyone knew him as the coach around town since he was the Clarkson University men's soccer coach. And 
he was also a very good college player as well. So that really helped set him up for getting this job as the head coach at this university. We meet his friend, Manai Tafari, who was actually a former teammate. He also played soccer with him. They had met back in 1996, and Nick had actually came to basically talk him into going to St. Lawrence University. Yeah. He wanted him to go with them, and they wanted to go together and, you know, have that college experience with friends. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Manai was probably also a fairly good soccer player. Right. So it was almost like he was kind of, like, recruiting him. Like, come on, like. Exactly. Do this with me. Exactly. And they ended up living in a house together while attending college. They, they called it the soccer house because they lived, I think it was with five or six other guys or yeah, it was like five or six of them yeah. lived together in this house. And they were all soccer players, really good soccer players. All Jamaican soccer players. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We meet Ian Fairley and he is the assistant soccer coach of Clarkson University and also a good friend of Nick's. And He states that everyone knew them because they were a bunch of great guys and they were dominating on the field. I mean, they had won national championships. They were winning every single game that they were playing. Yeah, he says they only lost like two or three games in four years. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. And I know a lot of people like kind of scoff at soccer, but if you've ever sat and watched a live soccer Mm -hmm. game, I'm talking not a kid's soccer game, but if you go to a Minnesota United game or another professional soccer game, it is unbelievable yeah. how talented these guys are. It's hard work. It's a really, really I can't tough even, sport. I get winded watching them. <laughs> they know. never stop running. It <laughs> is unbelievable. It is. Now, Nick tells us that he met Tandy in 2010 at the bar she actually worked at. He would go out to the bar with his work buddies and, and whatnot, but then he ended up starting this friendly relationship with Tandy. And she was intrigued by his work. She had also played soccer herself. So they really had a lot in common. And she was always always asking him a lot of questions. Yeah. Now, we start seeing these email exchanges between Nick and Tandy. There's a lot of them throughout yeah. this documentary. And a lot of it's just like normal conversations about parenting, their relationship, how they feel about each other, just normal things like nothing that. Nothing that stuck out to me. No, nothing that stuck out. But the one thing that did Ugh. was that every single email they would send to each other. Now, this is before they started dating and while they're dating. Yeah, and during, yeah. He would call her Miss Cyrus and she would call him Mr. Hillary. Cringe. For every single email. So that was interesting. Maybe it was, it was weird. It was weird. Maybe it was a role play type of thing. I don't know. It, it was a little interesting Ew. To, to see that. Be normal and call him babe or something. <laughs> right. Come on. <laughs> now, at 28 minutes in, 35 seconds, we finally meet Tandy. Or actually sort of. see her on screen. Yeah. But we find out that this was for an interview with 2020. This was not for the documentary film crew. This was for the show 2020. We hear just a little blurb of her talking about it. You know, there being a lot of gossip. It's a small town, race-related. She's white. He's black. I mean, there was always these correlations, right? That people are putting these puzzle pieces together themselves. They think they know what happened. And that it had something to do with race, which is awful in itself. But in a small town, that's probably what they were thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he was from Brooklyn. So, you know, and originally from Jamaica. Yeah, so right. it's not like he grew up there, too. Right, right. He was an outsider. Yeah. 
even if, you know, no matter what color he was, he would have been an outsider because he didn't grow up there. Exactly. Now, Nick states that they got along so easily and were attracted so quickly to each other because Tandy was really open-minded and super caring. She had two kids and he had three. And they actually found a house big enough that they could all move into and they moved in together fairly quickly. So, yeah, they had lived together for, they say, about a year is how long the relationship was. So Mm -hmm. we don't know if they lived together for that long. But it did sound like there were some kids making comments about their relationship and that her boys just didn't really like Nick. So they decided to split. And actually, John Jones helped her to find a different apartment to live in, which is the one that they ended up living here on 100 Market Street. Yeah. And at the time, Nick and Tandy were still kind of in a relationship, but now just living separately with their each right. of their respective children. I mean, they wanted to do it for the kids, right? right. What was in the best interest of the children and, and what was kind of happening. So they were still going to try to make their relationship work, but... Allowing their kids the space. Exactly. Yeah. To have their own places. Sure. And Nick says, you know, it was in the interest of the kids to end the relationship completely. Now, Lieutenant Mark Murray goes on to say that he had gone over to Nick's apartment approximately two and a half hours after the murder took place and that he had sat on the couch. Nick was freshly showered, wearing socks and sandals, which I wrote, ew, who does that? Mm -hmm. I hate socks and sandals. (laughs) Put shoes on or wear sandals. (laughs) He's also wearing some athletic pants and a long sleeve T-shirt. And this was the first moment that Nick had found out that Garrett had passed away. Right. Yep. Now, Nick says that, you know, he immediately began making calls to the family, friends, and Tandy when he found this out. I I mean, probably to, you know, see how everyone's doing, if he can help in any way, just probably being a concerned person. And he had a lot of feelings for Tandy. Yeah. Even though they were still friends, they had a great relationship with each other. Yeah. They really, truly cared and loved each other. So that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Manai Tafari, Nick's friend, comes on and says, you know, he thought it odd that the police showed up at his house. Yeah. That the lawyer and him knew that it was not normal for the police to give death notifications to exes, which in a way I can see that. But we don't know how soon these two had broken up. And true. If they had just broken up and the news wasn't exactly widespread, I don't see why that would be a weird thing. Right. But again, yeah, I don't know. I I also would think that, you know, he was close to the family. I was thinking maybe they would make a phone call, if anything, but not physically go to his house. And I think that's where Manai is coming from. Like, he immediately thought something was a bit iffy with that scenario, because why wouldn't they just give him a call and say, hey, we know you had a relationship recently with Tandy. Her son actually just died last night of, you know, foul play or just give him a little bit of something. And we're we're doing connecting interviews, whatever. Just give him a little bit of information. But yeah, he he immediately knew something was wrong there. Now, Nick says that he had actually reached out to Tandy, like we mentioned, by phone that night, but he had never heard back. Mm-hmm. And then we see video footage of Tandy in the interview with, I mean, definitely John Jones is sitting next to her. You can see Mark Murray. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming Ed Tischler is there. And then there's like another police officer or two. I mean, it's a full room. Yes, it is. Of people. And you see her 
playing voicemails to the police. Mm -hmm. So they had to have been voicemails from Nick. They were. And they sounded totally normal. Like, hey, just wanted to check in, make sure you're okay. Yeah. You know, give me a call. Like, nothing weird or suspicious. No, super concerned. Concerned. And he's like, yeah, just give me a call back and let me know how things are going. Make I want to make sure you're okay. Now, John Jones says on his own side note that there was no doubt in his mind that this all pointed to Nick. He said, this wasn't based on opinion. This was based on good police work. I call bullshit. Oh, it gets real bad. And we're going to start to get real pissed coming up here. Sure. So So if there are children in the room, you may want (laughs) to ask them to leave because we may be dropping some bombs of the F persuasion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It gets gets very fucked up. It, yeah. it, it gets really bad to the point where I don't know how all of these officers did not lose their job. I was screaming at my phone. Oh. Okay, let's move on. Let's we'll not, get there. We'll get there. <laughs> the, the passion and the anger will come out again. Yes. You guys will hear it. We get to meet Jesse McKinley, who's actually an Albany Bureau Chief of the New York Times. And he states that they have to figure out who did this as soon as possible. A 12-year-old was killed. We have said this over and over and over. Of course, when a child is murdered, you want to solve this case as soon as possible because the public is going to get real pissed real quick if you don't figure it out. And kind of on high alert. Absolutely. If there's a mass murderer out there running around that they can't find, everyone is going to get really on edge and really pissed off, you know? And it's kind of common knowledge that... Within these types of situations, those first 48 hours are critical. So crucial. You have to act now because evidence doesn't stay there. Exactly. Things can get tampered with. They need to act. Exactly. Now, Jesse, he has questions. He says, what evidence do they have on Nick Hillary? Any other tips? Were there any other suspects? Was there anything else that they can kind of give us to explain their reasoning, right? Yeah. And if not, what type of tips were ignored because they had such a laser focus on Nick Hillary? Exactly. Now, Shannon Harris comes back. She was the girlfriend of one of the neighbors that lived on 100 Market Street. They were the ones in the parking lot working on the tire. Yes, working on the tire. And she believes that the murderer left the house right after they had went inside at 5.20 p.m. Because they would have saw him otherwise. Because... The window was right above where they were working on this vehicle. Right. Yeah. Nobody could have jumped out of that window and not be seen by them had had they jumped prior to 520. Right. And honestly, she says that she thought that Nick was probably the easiest target for them. I mean, there was, you know, the the bad blood, I guess you could say, between him and Garrett. And they were broken up. And maybe he was upset that, you know, Garrett was the reason they split up. And it didn't seem that way at all. It seemed like their breakup was very amicable and they were fine. They were so friendly with each other. There was no like hardship or, you know, animosity between each other. I mean, they just dealt with it. Yeah, it seemed pretty drama free. Yes, yes. We meet Natasha Haverty. She's a reporter. And she states that Potsdam is situated in New York's prison country. So, like, the lifeblood is in corrections, really. I mean, a lot of people work for the prison system. She states, and I quote, 
a lot of white people's only interactions with black people are when they're in a uniform as a corrections officer guarding inmates of color. Sure. So it's already like they have this predisposition to feel a certain way about people of color. Well, it's a small town. I just, I hate the thought of that. And I hate saying that, but I mean, in all honesty, I grew up in a small town Mm -hmm. far away from a city and at least 45 minutes from Maple Grove. Mm -hmm. So my small town, we didn't have a lot of African-American people who lived there. We had two guys in my high school, but they were like straight from Africa. Like they had like moved here from Africa and sure. had been like adopted. Mm-hmm. They weren't from like inner city. So we just didn't grow up with a whole lot of diversity. Sure. So I think in a lot of ways, this speaks pretty true. If yeah. the only thing you're ever seeing are buses driving through your town with a bunch of guys handcuffed yeah. in orange jumpsuits, that's going to be your frame of reference. Yeah. It sucks. It really fucking it's just, sucks. It's just terrible. It's just to but think that's that, their life. Yeah. And it's to think that people still think that way today. I mean, it's it's a harsh, harsh reality that is just it needs to end. I mean, that kind of thinking and that small mindedness needs to go away in this day and age. I mean, yeah. come on, guys. We're 2021. Let's get away from that. We're all human beings. Agreed. We but all believe the same color situations. <laughs> right. You know, because they're not getting you know, much else. However, they did have a Nick Hillary Mm -hmm. that lived in their town who was by all definitions successful and not a criminal. Right. You know, so he had all of the makings of being able to help turn people's minds around. Sure. And opinions until this fucking happened. Right. Right. Now they're throwing his name in the mud and now things are going to get Hard for him, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. His reputation is being tarnished yeah. for nothing. Mm-hmm. Jesse McKinley comes back, that chief of the New York Times, and he says that there's actually four colleges within 10 miles of Potsdam. That's so, shocking to I me. I know. I know. There's there's Canton State University, Clarkson University, where Nick works, St. Lawrence University, where he went to college. Right. And then we have Potsdam State University. So, so it's universities. And correctional facilities. I know. And that's kind of what he stated. He said that you can see Confederate flags driving around on different trucks of people. But then you also see the colleges with the bar activities and the functions that go on. And it's just almost like there's two different worlds going on up in that area. Yeah. Well, and I think it also kind of goes back to that initial little conversation we had in the beginning about how... You're at, you know, in your 30s, mm-hmm. life is very different <laughs> than when you were in your late teens and yeah. early 20s in college. Yeah, yeah, Right? Absolutely. They're two different worlds. Two total, you're almost like a different person when and, you turn 30 or when you get closer to your 30s. It's crazy. Right. And with this being such a small area, with having four universities in such a small <laughs> radius, I'm willing to bet a lot of people were coming in from the city like Nick mm-hmm. from Brooklyn to go to school here, he wasn't from here. Yeah. So all of the other kids that are going to these schools are probably not from right. there. Right. Well, Even that Marissa said that she came, yeah. you know, moved there. Right. So again, it's you've got the locals versus the transplants. John Jones comes back. Ugh, I just I hate they give him a lot of talking points and I'm I'm not interested. In well, them. let's hope at one point he says something that's worth listening to. I know. To. 
Well, he basically states that Nick was really just an acquaintance to him. He knew of him. He was not a friend of his. They were acquaintances. He then makes a comment that he knew that Tandy was attractive and that, you know, she was a bartender. So she would always get attention from guys. I mean, it was just a no brainer. But he goes on to state that he enjoyed having other men give her attention and basically ogle her, oogle her when she worked at the bar. And I'm like, I don't fucking believe that at all. No. You do not seem like the guy that's totally fine with that. Like, you're the kind of guy that one dude looks at your girl and you're kicking his ass. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I hated everything he said. It was all a lie. I mean, everything he said was a complete fucking bullshit lie. Yeah. John goes on to tell us that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time and saw Nick and Tandy driving together one early morning when he and Tandy were still together. Right. Okay. So he ends up confronting Nick at Nick's house and he's like, are you guys seeing each other? And Nick's like, no, we're absolutely not seeing each other. And he just needs to go talk with Tandy. Nick, on the other hand, though, feels like it was a bit more aggressive than that very lightly put story. Because he's explaining it like, oh, it was no big deal. I just wanted to see if he was going to tell me something. And when he, oh my God, I I honest to God, want to punch this guy in the face. Because he's I don't bold-faced think, lying to us. No, he is. Because I don't think John is one of those guys that's going to let his testosterone be questioned no. in any way, shape, or form. Well, and we find that out later that he does not yeah. like that at all. Yeah. And Nick even tells us that Early in their friendship, there was nothing going on. Like, they were just friends. Sure. They had similar interests like we talked about. They both played soccer. They were just friends. Yeah. So I do believe that. Now, if we know that they overstepped their boundaries, it may have happened. It happens all the time. They weren't married or anything. Not to say that that's any better. No. But... You know, things like that happen. You know what I mean? Nick was living with the mother of his children at the time, too. So it wasn't like he was just a single guy, like in college, and she was a single bartender. Right. She was dating John. He was living at home with his, for lack of any other better term, baby mama. Yeah. And their children. I mean, yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. In that regard. Well, and then... John Jones, of course, has to put his mouth and foot in every single place. <laughs> he actually went to Stacia, who was Nick's children's mother, and asks if she was okay with what was going on between Nick and Tandy. And of course, <laughs> she had no idea what was going on. This completely caught and her he off knew guard. That. I'm sorry. Of he course, fucking knew that. He wanted to be an asshole yeah. and stir up shit. And we see that that starts to unfold here. Yep. That there was actually domestic incidents between Stacia, Tandy, and possibly John. I mean, we don't know. There was damage to vehicles. I mean, really, like all hell was kind of breaking loose. Sure. Now, there was like, a car being keyed, but they never found out who did it because someone did it to Nick's vehicle. Yeah. Obviously, it's John. Right. I mean, clearly it's John. Or it's Stacia. And if so, Nick is just, he seems like one of those guys where he's just like, you know what? I'm not even going to like give this my time. Right. Like it's, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. People are acting a fool. Yep. (laughs) I am above this. I'm moving on with my life. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. He seems very, Calm and collected. Yeah. Completely. Which can also be kind of scary A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, he seems very rational. Yes, absolutely. Rational for sure. Yes, absolutely. Now, as 
we figured John wasn't quiet about his breakup with Tandy. No. And Garrett passing, as horrible as it sounds, almost fueled his fire of revenge. I truly, truly believe that. Mm-hmm. He's telling us that, oh, they did great police work, and that's why Nick Hillary's the the main suspect. Like, fuck that, man. If he did, he would be in a jumpsuit right now. Yes, and you don't like him. Mm-hmm. So now that this happened, you have a reason to pin something on him. You're associated with that police station. You know everyone there. Everyone's going to take your side. Ugh. I hate so much about it. No, it's, it's a personal it's a vendetta. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Mark tells us that on Tuesday night into Wednesday, so this was a day after Garrett died, because Garrett, Garrett died on, died Monday. on Monday. Yep. He tells us that they they had to talk to Nick again because they had cleared everyone else. And I'm like, please explain, Mark. How did you clear them? And he states by alibi or just precluded. They just couldn't have done it. And I'm like, can you elaborate a little bit? Because I'd love to hear your theories who else you were looking at, who else you thought was a suspect, and why they're all of a sudden not a suspect only one day after the murder. Have you really investigated them? Have you really questioned these people? Have you looked into their alibis that closely? So that was a little interesting for me. Yeah. We see a quick statement from Tandy that states that my family already knew the next day that Nick was a person of interest in Garrett's death. So... It was kind of well-known, like, yep, he did it, no doubt about it, let's not look anywhere else, there's no one else that could have done this to Garrett, right? I mean, the blinders were on, everyone had their sights on Nick, and that's who we're going after. Oh, yeah, they were charging headfirst. For sure. Now, Nick was stunned. He could not believe that Tandy would go along with this theory of him killing Garrett. She had been on trips with him to different countries and went on vacation with him and spent a lot of quality time with him and knew he was not that kind of person. Right. He thinks that she was completely manipulated by none other than John Jones, I'm sure. And that's my own opinion. He doesn't, he didn't say personally that it was John Jones. I think it was him. Yeah. Completely. He talked with her when she was vulnerable and would probably believe anything. He's in with the police station. So, you know, he probably knows a lot about investigations and and how to catch these guys. And I don't know if she truly believed that it was Nick, but she was manipulated into believing that. I'm going to tell you right now, she does not strike me as somebody with much of a backbone of her own. Nope. As we can tell, she's not even in this goddamn documentary. And that pisses me the fuck off. Yeah. So I am not at all surprised that she would kind of let herself be led down a theory and not fight it in any way. Now, Lisa Marcosha, friend of Nick and Manai Tafari, so that friend of his as well, yeah. they happen to be married, by the way, Lisa and Manai. Mm-hmm. They just don't say it until a few minutes right, later. Right. But they're married and they're both attorneys. And she goes on to say that Mark Murray had put into his sworn affidavit that he was requesting a search warrant due to a leg injury that potentially would have happened from whoever committed this Mm -hmm. from jumping from the window. Yep. Now, I do think that this is a good way to go about it. Sure. Because that was a second story window. Not a whole lot of people could make that jump and not have some type of an injury, right? 
even whether it be from scraping the blinds, you know, like something stupid like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I don't think this is a terrible way to try to start looking. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot to go off of. Right. To be honest. Right. They didn't say a fucking word about like fingerprints on the window or anything. So this is a good, for lack of a better phrase, jumping off point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they said that in this affidavit, Mark Murray had stated that he had observed Nick Hillary the next night at a soccer game with a significant limp walking around. But video footage found a few years later, few years, that was weird to me. I thought that I almost didn't write that down. I almost like missed it. Yeah. And then I went back and rewatched and I was like, years, years later, later they saw this. And this was Manai and Lisa. Right. They, they see, this, see video. this video footage that show Nick walking back to the locker rooms during halftime with no limp. Not at all. And he's walking faster than like the 19 and 20 year old players that he's walking to the locker room with. I mean, he beat all of them to the locker room. Right. He was a man on a mission. And to say that he had a significant limp is a bold faced line. You can see it from this video. Because I'm sorry, if you do have an injury on a leg, especially for somebody who's a soccer player, you're not going to pretend you don't have that injury because you could potentially injure it even more right? by just, like, walking through the pain. I don't know. It was bullshit. And Lisa says, why did he make that up? Mm-hmm. This limp that he supposedly saw. Now, Mark Murray goes on to say that, you know, he feels that he may have been covering up this injury. I wrote, I don't know, man. Seems like a stretch. Literally, he says that there was times that he was walking fine, But other times it looked like he was trying to conceal an injured leg. And I'm like, really, Mark, explain because you don't like to explain that much. I'm like, that is not a good reason for you to say that he had a significant limp when at times you thought he was trying to conceal a limp. That is not the same goddamn thing. No. And you know what? What are you talking about? If he's a soccer player, there's a good fucking chance he might be a little sore from running up and down that field. Right. For 90 minutes. Right. I mean, come on, Mark. Get on a treadmill. Oh, my God. Find your way to a gym and tell us what you feel like after being active all the time. And I can see he's getting nervous. Like when he's talking to the documentary crew, it's almost like, ooh, like grab my collar. Like he's he looks like he's sweating a bit. A little bit. When this conversation starts, because he can't I really think, account for it. He can't explain why he wrote that. And now that people have finally seen the video, we're like, really, Mark? When? Right. When did we didn't see the slip at all in this limp. video? Yeah. But you're just saying that it was looking like he was concealing. So your own personal feeling. It was a personal feeling, of him in my opinion. Concealing a limp. Like, yeah. fuck off, Mark. Ugh. So Jesse McKinley comes back and he says that he had been contacted by an attorney about a case where a black man in New York was potentially being railroaded because he had a spotless record. He was a military vet, a star athlete, a promise. You know, he had a promising coaching career. But ultimately, Jesse thought he just didn't seem to be the person that would be capable of this. But things were moving in that direction quickly. Way too quickly. Way too quickly. With very little evidence to support it. So Nick says that He had been ordered into the station Wednesday morning, again, two days after the murder, and he calls his friend Manai, and Manai says that he knew immediately 
that Nick was going to be framed. Yeah. I mean, I can't disagree with him. I would have those that spidey sense also telling me that. Some on-screen text tells us that Mark Murray and Gary Snell told Nick Hillary the purpose of the meeting was to go over the student roster of Garrett's class. Weird. That was so fucking weird to me. When I saw that, I was like, was he his teacher? Why was he would his they parent? do that? It was weird. Now, at first I was like, maybe Garrett was in soccer. Maybe Nick was like a soccer coach for him and wanted to go over that roster. But no, he says Garrett's class. It was weird. I didn't like it. Immediately, I would have had red flags up and been like, really? For what What reason? Why would I need to go over a class roster list when I'm the ex-boyfriend of the mother? I yeah. have nothing to do with his class or his friends. What? What would I have to do? And he even states he was he went in because he was trying to be helpful. He wanted to figure this out like he wanted to do whatever he could to help this investigation along. Right. Well, he thought he was doing a good service because that's the kind of person he was. Exactly. And he says that as a person of color, he had always been told, quote, don't talk to the police. And I wrote down, no, as anybody, mm-hmm. Nick, never talk to the police. And I'm talking to you, listeners. Do not talk to the police. No. And it's not because cops are bad. That is not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is cops will take whatever you say and will use it against you in a court of law. Mm -hmm. As the Miranda rights plainly state, if you are ever going to have to be interviewed by police, have a fucking lawyer there. Always. Always. Or invoke your Fifth Amendment right if they start asking you questions that seem Strange. I mean, if they ask you your name, obviously you could say that kind of stuff. Like easy things, yet yes. they're not trying to trap you in something because right. that's when they're questioning. They'll they'll try to make it sound like it's a normal question, but it's actually a trap of exactly. some sort. Exactly. To, to make you slip up and say that you were somewhere when you weren't or make you sound like somebody that you're not. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the whole interview is recorded, obviously. So it's 8.28 a.m. Wednesday morning. Nick walks in. They're talking about reading him his rights almost right away. And I was like, what? And Nick goes, what do you mean you're going to read me my rights? Well, if you're going to read me my rights, because he's not an idiot. So he goes to stop them. And they immediately say, well, we don't have to read them to you. And I was like, huh? Oh, Oh, this is immediately where I was like, this shit is not okay because they just, they were going to and they never fucking did. Because they're like, oh, you don't need to. You don't need to. Yeah. And I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if the person says they're waiving those. You still have to say them. Right. And they tell Nick, you're not under arrest or anything. Okay, if you're not under arrest, why are you reading me my rights? Yeah. And they said it doesn't apply to him. Fucking lie. I was like, it does apply to him and his fucking rights. I don't fucking get it. It was so ass backwards. This is the shit. They're trying to pull one over on him, right? And make it think like he's not a suspect when he actually fucking is. They're lying right to his face, not reading him his rights. Oh, it gets worse, you guys. It It gets worse. So Gary Snell starts talking about Tandy to Nick. She's a good looking woman. Anyone show Mm -hmm. any interest in her? And Nick's kind of like, I mean, I don't I don't know. Yeah. And he's like, well, I've known guys who have liked her for a long time. And I wrote so 
Who fucking cares? I think he's trying to make him feel comfortable. Like, we just want to learn a little bit more about Tandy's background. Since you dated her, maybe you know of these other guys that are interested. And I think they're just trying to make him comfortable. And, like, it's not on him. Like, they're not trying to ask him direct questions. Because, again, they're trying to get him to slip up and say something that he's going to regret. Mine was the opposite. I thought they were trying to rile him up and piss him off in some way. Oh, really? Kind of get at, like, that that male ego a little bit. That's where I was feeling it. Oh, I guess. I guess. I didn't even think about that. That actually does make sense because they want him to get upset enough and pissed off enough to To slip up, to show the aggression maybe. And yes, yes, yes. And because then they start asking, well, how did you break up? And Nick says, we separated. And they're like, you separated? And he's like, well, yeah, the breakup was mutual. There was no hostility. Yeah. And he maintains that through the whole thing. He does. Absolutely. We get some more on-screen text that states on October 26th, Ian Fairley is also brought into the police station for an interview. They're asking him questions about Nick, how he knows Nick, you know, the, the basic questions about their friendship and, and all that kind of stuff, how close they are. Sure. But he's also asking questions like, is Nick a player? Does he speak to a lot of women? Does he hang out with a lot of women? And he was asking about Tandy. Was Tandy something a little bit more? And And Ian's like... Well, you know, he never talked about marrying her, but, yeah. you know, I mean, it just, we didn't talk about that stuff. You know, it, I mean, it just wasn't really something that ever came up. Well, no, they were almost kind of more like work colleagues. Yeah. I yeah. mean, friends, but their they're probably main focus was soccer. Well, and do guys talk about that stuff all the time? Like, do they talk about their relationships that detailed like females do? I, I doubt it. I don't. Jared never talks about a relationship with his friends. He just he just doesn't. And he never has. He's just they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about football and they want to talk about whatever else. They they, they don't talk about that stuff so that it makes sense. But of course, the investigators have to keep asking him these questions. Well, again, they're 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 looking for something. Yeah, they're looking for something to pin on Nick for it to make more sense. Right. Because they have to have more evidence to be able to convict him or even to take him to a trial, right? And And to arrest him. Right. And I feel like they're also trying to look for a way to kind of point at a character flaw that would make this make sense. Because so far, there is nothing that shows that he would be somebody who would do something like this. Well, right. And they also ask, you know, was he upset about things ending? And, And he's like, well, when a relationship ends, like people are upset about it. But it was nothing that would be like, oh, my gosh, he went into a blind rage and was mad and right you know he was like no was like was, in a drunken stupor and stopped yeah. showing up for work like yeah no he was like it was totally normal like you're upset yeah i mean you spent a lot of time with this person you cared for him you loved them yeah it stinks it stinks when things have to end when you don't really want it to but it was nothing out of the ordinary so we're back to the interview with nick and the officers so mark murray and gary snell and mark's asking him about where his daughter goes to school you know what's her name etc just weird things and i immediately was like my guard went up i was like why and so did nicks yep he kind of gets a little pissed and he's like you asked me to come down here to look at a list of garrett's classmates and now you're asking a lot of damn questions and none of it pertaining to why you told me i was coming down here he ain't wrong right and gary tells him you're free to leave at any point. Yada, yada. We're just here to ask some questions. I mean, they're they're trying to, like, make it look like they're trying to, you know, alleviate him from yeah. the suspect pool. Oh, my gosh. Well, and that was it. 
he basically says, we need to eliminate you from this whole thing. And then, you know, Nick's like, am I a suspect? And he he's like, well, the whole town's a suspect. I'm like, fuck, get the fuck out of here, Gary. Like, you're just trying to say shit to make him feel better. Like, no, he's your only goddamn suspect that you have. Yeah. And it's like they're going back and forth with this interview where they're nice guys and then they're really mean guys and then nice guys and then mean guys. Like, I feel like they've never interviewed someone in their life. Oh, my God. That <laughs> was what threw me like so far. Now, granted, again, small town. They probably don't have a ton of this stuff come up. But my whole thing was I was like, is this like rookie hour? Like, I just don't understand their line of questioning. It was beyond frustrating. Oh, absolutely. It it was. Oh, my gosh. You just wanted to like leap into that interview room and be like, what the hell are you doing? Because then Gary switches it now and goes, OK, so do you know what you did on Monday? And he's like, yeah. I do. And he's like, well, what time was practice at? You told us that you had practice. And that's when he finally puts up his guard. Thank God. And Nick's like, no comment. So now he's he's kind of invoking his his Fifth Amendment right, right, to remain silent a little bit. Mark Murray comes to us and tells us that it's clear from the beginning of the interview that he only wanted to speak about the list of students and not answer any of the questions. No shit, Mark. That's why he's going there. Why would he ever have to answer any other questions? Right. You are telling him he's not suspect. Mark is as dumb as a box of rocks. I swear Seriously. to God. When he talks, I, what are you saying? You're literally giving yourself the answer there. Like, I know. what are you talking about? Because he says he thought it was odd that Nick was saying, I have no comment. I didn't think it was odd at all. No. If I started feeling like I was being interrogated, oh, I'm not saying shit right now. And then this really, really ruffled my feathers. Oh, I I think you're going to say what I think you're going to say. So he's like, oh, so you just want to go to the list. So you just want to look at the list. And he's like, fine, I'll go get it. They didn't even they didn't even have the fucking list in the room. They didn't have it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I know. I how? Ugh. How? You tell him that that is the reason he's coming down here and you don't even have the fucking list in the interview. You don't even have it right there. Oh, my no God. No wonder he was, had his walls up and guard up the whole time. And it's at this point that he's finally actually read his Miranda rights. Okay? Ugh. So this is the first time after they've already been talking to him for an hour at this point. Yeah. He's finally read his Miranda rights. Now, Nick states that he wants to invoke his sixth amendment right but i'm pretty sure he meant fifth because the sixth amendment is a right to a speedy trial and the fifth amendment is the right to remain silent the really fucked up thing is that they that they never corrected him and they fucking knew he was wrong by yeah. saying sixth amendment and they were so dumb fifth. they may not have known they that. might not have known either but i'm like oh my god what is happening because here? the fifth amendment right has to do with the miranda law exactly exactly it's the it's the right to not talk the right to remain exactly. silent. You can you, you don't have to say anything nope, to the police when word. they're asking you questions, and that's okay. And it does doesn't mean that you did whatever the act was. No, it means that this has happened before to people where they talk and they get themselves into some hole by accident. Words are twisted, and then they spend the rest of their life in prison, or they get put on death row or something. Like yeah. horrible things happen, right? Yeah, it's terrible. Manai comes back and tells us that, you know, Nick 
was a former soldier. He was a teacher, a coach, a, a graduate of a good university. I mean, he's a really smart guy and he's not going to get tricked by the cops. Like he knew and he felt that they were going in a different direction than what he had originally thought. Oh, I love how he says he's not one of the Central Park Five. Right. Which I was just like, oh, no kidding. If you guys have not watched When They See Us, I believe it was on Netflix, you have to watch When They See Us. It is a recreation of what happened to the Central Park Five kids, and it's fucked up. And I can't see how anybody would ever think that that was okay. And it happened. It's real. Shit like this happens, and it's awful. Yeah. And Nick is not an idiot. No. He's not a child. He's a very educated person, and he understands what's going on here. Absolutely, the whole time. Exactly. Now, Ian was actually getting questioned really, really hard about whether or not Nick would come to him for an alibi. So Ian was his alibi because Ian had stated to police that Nick had gotten to his house at 521. Exactly. He knew when he got there because Ian had actually been on a phone call and had proof of a timestamp of that phone call. He made the phone call. Nick came in his door at that time while he's waiting on hold, right, Right. on this phone call. So that's his alibi, right? Well, and they show the distance between the apartment complex and Ian's house. And it's close. It looks like a few blocks. It's a few blocks, but it's not seconds close. Right. I don't care if you're a soccer star or not. I don't think you could run that fucking fast. Because, again... The neighbors did not go into their house until 5.20 p.m. And he is timestamped at Ian's house at 5.21. So that would give him one minute to jump a window. Yep. And to run blocks to his house and not be completely winded walking in the door. And not be seen. Right. It's completely light out in the middle of the day. Exactly. None of it really made sense. No. And somebody would have said. We saw Nick Hillary sprinting through our backyard. Yeah. Because the only way that he could have gotten there that fast, well, and not even that fast, but fast would have been to cut through people's yards. Right. You you wouldn't take the street. You would cut through people's people's yards for sure. On-screen text tells us the officer Wentworth had heard movement in the apartment at 524 p.m. The sound was faint, but it was as if a single person were walking around, mm-hmm. which we had already stated yeah, earlier. Yeah, at the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Now, Mark Murray says that, you know, Officer Wentworth has kind of tortured himself over this over the years, which I can't blame him. I probably would, too. And maybe second guess yourself. Right. Because he's thinking, like, what what was it really? Could it have been those blinds yeah. blowing in the wind? Yeah. Could it have been, you know, one of the neighbors pacing the hallway? But I feel like. You would have known what it You knew what it was. And Your gut told you what it was. Don't second guess it now. And I, I think they're just trying to make the timing fit oh, to 100%. make it be Nick, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it could have been another person. It probably was another person, but you're not even looking in that area anymore. You're strictly trying to make it work so that Nick could have been there at that time. Yep. Because one minute time frame is not enough time for him to get from... Tandy's house to Ian's house. Right. So how can we make this fit? And uh, it's, it's so frustrating. It's it like super frustrating. So we're back at the interview and Gary and Mark are talking to Nick about how 
they had heard Garrett's last words. And I wrote, what? And Nick says, what do you mean? And they're like, well, Nick, you've got some problems. You were on Market Street in Potsdam at 5 p.m. And they're talking about him being a quality person that they don't think that this was intentional. Painting this picture of Garrett standing in between the relationship of him and Tandy. And they told him that he could, again, leave at any time. But then they block his exit from the room physically with their bodies. Again, seconds after they said that he's able to leave, he goes, okay, well, I'm leaving. He gets up. And Gary blocks the door. I'm like, that is fucking illegal. Yes, it is. He is not arrested and he would like to leave. Oh my God. I know. I know. I was like, oh, this is so infuriating. I'm like, this motherfucker, both of them. And then Mark gets up and starts screaming some bullshit. You know, he's now he's all angry. And, you know, again, they're going from like nice cops to bad cops to nice cops to in like split seconds. Oh, and talking like morons. Oh, yeah. Like we said, this was like their first interview ever because I literally wrote down talking like morons, complete morons. They and acted like childish. they were speaking to a child. Yes. I even texted you when I was right when I was going through this part. And I'm like. They are talking to him like he is Gypsy fucking Rose and Um, not an accomplished adult. Yeah. It was really condescending. Mark jumps up from his chair and says something to the effect of a 12-year-old's dead and you can't tell me when practice was. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You were just two seconds ago, Mr. Nice Guy, remember, like, you're you're a great person. I mean, you're you're a really great person. And, you know, bad things happen sometimes. And, you know, I hated all of it. I hated I, watching oh, it. Oh, Mike, it was so infuriating. And, and embarrassing. So embarrassing. Oh, it was super embarrassing. Like, what did my, what does my daughter always say? Something about I'm having. Yeah, I'm getting second degree embarrassment from this. <laughs> she says it all the time. And that's I how I that. felt with this. I was oh, like, yeah, I was embarrassed horrible. for them because this is so horribly wrong. And sadly enough, Nick couldn't do anything. Nothing. You know, because he knew he would be in more trouble if he actually physically touched them or did anything to them. 100%. It'd be horrible. Thank God he was smart enough to not do anything. Because it would have been way worse for him, guaranteed. Yeah. So they say that they're going to pursue a search warrant to photograph his body for any recent injuries. Which, okay, obviously they think somebody could have gotten injured by jumping out the window. Yep. But also, keep in mind, he is a soccer player. Yeah. There's a really good chance that he could have bruises or cuts or scars or whatever all over his shins. I mean, you're not completely protected in your sport. And he's been doing this since he was a kid. He might not have shin guards on because he's the coach. You know what I mean? Like He's not in full equipment while he's coaching. Right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Because you don't see. Yeah. Why would he be? So he might be doing plays with the team, but he's not wearing shin guards. He's, yeah. you know, he might be wearing shoes possibly, but he right. he's not protected like the actual players are. You know right. what I mean? Like with socks and, and shin guards and all that kind of stuff. Totally. So then he, now Nick has his phone in his hand and he's trying to start making a phone call. My guess was immediately to Manai. Yep. yep. I, I figured that's who he was trying to call. And they tell him to put his phone down and shut it off. And then they say, oh my God, this pisses me off. Something to the effect of, do you ever watch CSI? 
Do you know what DNA is? And all of these weird questions. I wrote, I'm fuming Mm -hmm. because he goes, no. And they're like, why are you lying to us? And he's like, what are you talking about? You just asked me if I watch CSI. We asked you if you knew what DNA was. Well, yeah, I know what it is. See, you just lied. And I'm like, this is how you fucking get yourself into trouble with police because they uh, twist your words. And they're overlapping him. They're not letting him speak. They're talking. Over, right. They're so rude and all over the fucking. It's oh it was God. all over the place. Have you ever seen CSI? And do you know what DNA is? Why don't you explain why the fuck that's being even brought up right now? Because we are at the end of the documentary and not once has DNA been brought up. Right. At all. Nope. So Manai does say that he gets a call from Nick that they won't let him leave. And he knew at this moment that it wasn't good yeah. and it wasn't legal. Yeah, absolutely. And he left immediately. Leaves to drive up there. Yep. And it's a little bit of a ways. Yeah, he said, I think it was like an eight-hour drive. So he got in his car and he's on his way to, to figure this shit out with him because he knew shit was about to go down and very quickly. Yes. And then they confiscate Nick's phone. I don't think they can do that. They can't do that. He's not under arrest. What the fuck is happening here? And they're basically taking away his right to an attorney. Yeah. No. 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 He's like, no. You had your chance. You you talked to an attorney. Now we're good to go. And it's like, what the fuck? You don't know if you talked to a damn attorney. That's not how that works, guys. Oh, my God. I literally, I have OMG. Like multiple underlined here because I could not. No. And Mark says something like, are we going to tell the press this case is still pending or that we have someone in custody? It's like, that's all you're worried about is your press conference at 10 a.m. is telling them if you have someone in custody or not. When you're not even being straightforward with Nick right now about whether he's in custody or not. You guys are all over the fucking place. Nick doesn't even really know what the fuck is going on right now. He's still confused himself. I'm confused. Oh, it's horrible. It's so bad. This is like a terrible play. It doesn't seem real. Nick tells us that that's when he realized that they were working behind the scenes to try and keep him there for the whole time. Because I'm sure they were trying to dig up more evidence since they already had him there. Can they figure more stuff out while he's there so they can arrest him? Yep. And get it over with, right? Well, we see evidence and reports of what looks like them impounding his vehicle from their parking lot and taking note about it being locked, meaning they can't enter it. Right, right. They talk about how they won't let him answer his phone. Oh my gosh. Well, they wouldn't even let him make a phone call. So he was like running out like, please, please let me, let me make a phone call. They wouldn't let him make a phone call. I'm like, what is happening? And there's like four or five officers like surrounding him, like bullying him. I'm like, what? the fuck is happening right now and we see some on-screen text that says in addition to calling Manai Tafari who embarked on the seven-hour drive from New York City to Potsdam Nick Hillary also called a local lawyer named Jane Garland so Mark Murray comes back and says that you know Nick at this point got his attorney and Mark is writing out and executing a search warrant with the help of a judge approving yeah, it yep. All of this is on tape in his office, he says. So it's all been recorded. So he's like, basically, this is all legal. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you. Oh, terrible. So what they're looking for is an injury from jumping out of that window, as we've kind of stated a few times. Right. So they're having him, you know, they're taking photographs of each part of his body, strip searching him, you know, piece by piece until they get to 
a scuffed injury on the inside of his ankle. Now, Nick claims that he didn't know how it happened. He doesn't remember how it got there. And then he says, well, it might have been for moving furniture around in his house. Sure. Now, Mark states, I don't believe that you don't remember where it could have came from. (laughs) I wrote down, clearly you're a man and don't have the ability to multitask because I can't tell you how many times I have bumped my knee. Oh, yeah. Gotten a bruise, cut myself and not realized it until like an hour later. And I'm like, how the hell did I do this? All the time. All the time. So uh, I want to strangle this guy. Well, and it's okay. So this scuff literally was on, it almost looked like his ankle bone. Yeah, that little brown bone on the yes. inside of your ankle. And it was like, it literally looked like maybe the top layer of skin had come off and there was like a bit of a scab on it. Like it didn't really look like much to me. You know? I didn't even think it looked like there was much of a scab. Yeah. Thought, to me, it looked really fresh. And how fucking obvious could that have been? From maybe moving furniture or from soccer. Yeah. You're yeah. using the inside of your ankle. Well, then what do they do? They completely strip search him and photograph every part of him completely nude. And oh, this fucking, oh, this made me so pissed. I hope you're thinking what I'm thinking. So, The documentary crew asks Mark, okay, well, were others, you know, completely strip searched and photographed nude? Or is that normal for people to get strip searched nude? Right. And Mark goes, well, yeah, there were others who did this. And they're like, well, who? And he goes, well, Garrett Phillips was. The Um, fucking victim, you guys. No shit, you fucked hard is what I wrote down. Because I was like, of course they're going to photograph him and make sure that they don't see anything else on his body. They're doing a goddamn autopsy. When Mark... I literally could not... I, Kenzie, I was watching this on my phone at my dining room table. (laughs) My husband had came up to the kitchen at this time. Yeah, I threw my phone across the table, like flicked it because I was like, oh my God. And then I put my head down and my husband walks over and he's like, what is going on? And I'm like, I need an Advil (laughs) and I need a neck massage. I can't even get through this. I'm like, there is eight minutes left in this documentary and I don't think I can finish it today. No, because it's uh, listening to Mark speak. It is unbelievable that he has a fucking job as a police officer and what investigator in this case, because everything he says is a pile of garbage. Everything he says, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. He talks like he's a fifth grader, like he's not educated. It's it's horrible. Yeah. No, it's unbelievable. And Manai goes on to say that in some like strip searches, yes, there are people who are photographed completely naked. Generally, we're talking cases of like rape victims right. where maybe the victim could have potentially bit the guy's penis or something. Right. And they need to prove it. Or there would be DNA or something right. on there. Or yes, yeah. Not in the case of a 12-year-old being strangled to death. What would his dick have anything to do with it? And the only thing that they think happened to this suspect or perpetrator was that something happened with his leg, right? Why do you need to see his dick and everything? Why? Yeah. There's no reason for it but making him feel like a piece of shit and really tearing him down as a human being. It was a mental thing. For sure. And that's fucking illegal too. 
So Nick goes on to say that, again, he was never arrested. He says that they strip searched him and sent him out of the police station, sent him home as if it was the day he was born with absolutely nothing. They sent him home in like a white hazmat suit eight hours later. Oh, my God. Jesse McKinley goes on to say that law enforcement, family members, a lot of people in the community all seemed pretty convinced that this was Nick who did it. Because, of course, they're making it look like it was Nick who did it. There was definitely a rush towards fingering Nick Hillary in this case. And Jesse goes on to say, if he didn't do it, who was able to get away? Yeah. All this time passed and no one else is even being looked at. Ugh, this episode was so frustrating to me. I'm so glad that we have a week before we do the next part because I need time to recover. (laughs) I was just going to say that I'm like, we have a whole nother part that we have to do with this. And I I don't think it's going to get better. Thankfully, I think that Nick might not have gone to trial or somehow it was dismissed because obviously we see him in this documentary, not in prison, which is a good thing. So hopefully we start to see some bad things happen to these horrible cops. Yeah, I kind of doubt it, though. I know. I know. I, I doubt it, too. Make sure to tune in next week for the final installment of Who Killed Garrett Phillips. You won't want to miss it. If you just can't get enough of our podcast, please go out and rate and review us on iTunes. We wanted to give a quick shout out to Kelly ND3 and her review that she yeah. gave us. Kelly says, Hey, as promised, here's my review. You guys are doing a great job. I'm still on the Gabriel case and I love you guys so far. Great job. We Aww. appreciate it so much, Kelly. I love reading these things. Oh, me too. It makes it all worth it in our eyes. I mean, we already love true crime. We love doing this. It, it is a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the back end that goes into making this podcast, but this is the kind of stuff that makes it all worth it. And we totally love you too. Oh, yes. Even if only one person out there is listening and <laughs> loves it, it's worth it. It is worth it. Now, join us on our Facebook group, Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group. You can find us on Instagram at sheer underscore crime underscore podcast and on Twitter at sheer crime pod. Thanks again. And don't forget, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.